Tom Benchy Media Podcast, my new series, the Thomas Alva Edison series. And this episode is number two, and it's entitled Always Improving. And we get a chance to speak with Dr. Paul Israel of the Thomas Edison Papers from Rutgers University. And he talks a little bit more about Edison's life and his career and his work ethic. And one of the things we learn is that Edison, early on in his career, he travels to England and he's trying to sell his own telegraphy system in England. And though they did not, he did not succeed in doing so, what he did do is he learned a, a, a great deal about telegraphy from that trip from the British. And I thought that's a really great lesson if you're an entrepreneur, you're starting your own business, is to really have an open mind and have what we call a growth mindset. I'm actually reading or rather listening to a book called The Growth Mindset. And what it really relates to is, is how we see challenges, we see adversity, we see uh, negative critique as something, as a way of not defining us, of not stopping us, of not really um, making us uh, essentially be um, crippled by these critiques, but as a way to grow and to learn and to look at it as a challenge and to enjoy that challenge. And I think Thomas Edison did that really spectacularly. We see that early on in his career. He's He's very motivated on the end result, and that's always improving and improving systems and getting better as an inventor. And I think that's just a great mindset to have. And when you see people that are successful, oftentimes they don't look at uh, challenges or they don't look at the process as, um, you know, they're not deterred by the process and it doesn't, it doesn't bother them. They look at it as something that they enjoy. And the challenge is something that we enjoy. And you have to have that mindset if you want to improve. For example, if you're looking, you know, let's talk about health and fitness, right? If, if you're looking to improve in your exercise routine, routine, if you're looking to get healthier and to get better at a sport, if you look at the practice part as something that is dreadful, as something that um, you just have to do to get to the end result, and it's just something that you're, you're battling every step of the way, even if you do succeed in doing it, it's, it's not going to be a pleasurable experience. It's not going to be experience where you're growing um, from a personal standpoint. It's going to be just a hard challenge that you don't really uh, want to be doing. And when you ha it's going to affect your mentality. It's going to affect your emotional well-being. It's going to, going to affect how you interact with others. But if you have the mentality that, hey, I enjoy working out, right? I enjoy doing those push-ups every day. I enjoy getting on the elliptical machine. I enjoy biking, right? As it's a way that I can clear my mind. I can, I can better myself. Uh, I enjoy that time that I set out for myself to uh, work out because not everybody has a chance to do that. And you should look at it as a way of, of uh, enjoyment. Uh, look at that challenge as a, as a way of enjoyment. And that's how you're going to uh, it, exceed. And that's how, how you're going to get better. Also, right? If you're creating something and you're getting negative feedback, okay, there's two, there's a few ways you can go about it. Now, number one, you can just take that feedback and you can look at it as a way of, of uh, de defining you. It's negative feedback. Hey, I made a short film. It got trashed by some critics. It got trashed by people that I respect their opinion and I'm just never going to do it again. You see that. You see that a lot in life, right? People, they get one bad experience. They, they, they get one um, negative review and they just never do something again. And that's really unfortunate because some of the greatest uh, icons in the world, 
um, in their fields have really struggled throughout their, their, uh, their challenges and struggled throughout their careers to get to where they are today. You know, even Mozart, Beethoven, these great uh, intellectuals, these great artists, they didn't, a lot of times they don't come out of the gate just being these fantastic geniuses. They have to work at it. And a lot of the stuff they produce early on in their careers aren't uh, that great, but they work hard and they do have some uh, skill and they have some talent and they, they develop that. So, you know, just taking negative feedback as a way to really define and destroy you is not a, a good mentality. The, the better mentality is to look at negative feedback and say, hey, this negative feedback, what can I do? What can I do to incorporate this and to learn from this experience and to learn from this feedback, right? It's about learning. It's about growing. It's about moving forward. And that's something that also Edison did throughout his career. He was always looking forward as a way to progress and to grow and develop his skills. And he always had end goals in mind. So if you have the end goal in mind, then if you get negative feedback, that's just another way to incorporate that feedback into your mentality into your growth mindset, etc. Uh, you know, I think what's really important about Edison is and why he's so revered and, and why his technology has been so long, long lasting is because he was more concerned with bettering technology, making it more efficient, making it better than he was with actually how it worked. So he always had the practicality mindset when he developed these different, uh, whether it be the light bulb, whether it be the motion picture later on in his career, he was always concerned with its efficiency and, and the practical use of it and more and less concerned with kind of the, the grandiose of uh, the experiment. He always had the practical use in mind. And that's why uh, I think he was so successful. And that's why he's revered uh, you know, almost 100 years or after his death is because his technology is still being used today in many respects, right? The lighting system had such a revolutionary effect on the way humanity lived that it's, it, it cannot be denied that his impact just changed the world. It, it changed the way that people live their lives, right? It, it, early on, it, before Edison came along, the nighttime was a very dark time. Not much was going on, but through his system and the way that he approached it, he, he changed the way that human beings live. And, and that's why I think he's so revered. He was very practical in his use. And he understood, uh, if we're looking at the light bulb, for example, how this system of technology can really change the world. And also, he approached it from a very systematic way of looking at inventing and looking at uh, technology. It wasn't just about the light bulb. It was the system that was associated with it, right? A lot of people have been working on the light bulb for, I think, 40 years prior to Edison. But they looked at it as just a standalone item. And what Edison did and what made it so great was he looked at the system. And that's why it's uh, incorporated into the way that we uh, light buildings today is, is Edison's system that he developed all those years ago. So. Um, I think just from my own standpoint, how I took that from an entrepreneurial standpoint, from a creative standpoint, it's, we, you know, we have to have these creative ideas, but we have to be really practical in it, right? I'm, I'm developing uh, television series right now. So I have 
all the assets that are associated with a potential series. I have the pilot, I have the pitch Bible, I have the pitch deck, et cetera. Now you have to think about what are the different ways that we can go about and getting this made and getting it produced, et cetera. So you have to take these grandiose ideas. And I see a lot of artists, a lot of creatives out there and, and it's, you know, you get just so caught up in the idea of something and so caught up in just these, just grandiose things that it's really hard to understand how it makes sense from a practical standpoint and how we can incorporate that into our creative outlook and our creative plan. So it's not just about having these great ideas. Great ideas are a dime a dozen. It's about taking those ideas and making it into something that's practical and real and delivers real results in our careers and in our lives. So those are just some really, uh, some cool insights I took from this particular episode. Uh, we have a couple more coming up, but you know, for, from my own experience with Thomas Edison, listen, I'm from Edison, New Jersey. I always knew who Thomas Edison was, but I wanted to develop more of my interest into how his technology not only changed the world, but how his work ethic, how he can use that system of strategic systematic approach to work and incorporate that within today's world and into my own goals, my own careers. And hopefully you can uh, take something away from it as well, because uh, the, the process that he put in place all those years ago, we can definitely use today. So uh, another great episode with Dr. Paul Israel. I hope you really enjoyed it. Again, it's always, it's, I'm sorry, it's called always improving because that's what Edison was all about. He was always about getting better, improving. He enjoyed the process of his work and it showed in the end result. And I think that's a really great mentality to have if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a creative genius, if you're a creative leader, really, we always have to think about getting better, developing our skills and also loving the process along the way, incorporating those habits into our daily lives to really output some great results. So uh, another great episode, episode number two, always improving. I hope you enjoy. There'll be more coming up. So Edison had shops in Newark. His first shop was in 1870, funded by people from Golden Stock. And over time, he built up a large manufacturing enterprise in Newark. Um, he ended up in a four-story building. And by 1875, Edison was so successful as an inventor that he decided to separate the shop in half. He took two floors for a laboratory. He had built a little laboratory earlier, but now he built a much larger laboratory and the machine shop became part of the lab instead of the lab part of the machine shop as had been the case earlier. So why did Edison build this laboratory in the first place? He'd gone to Britain to promote yet another invention known as automatic telegraphy using machinery to send high-speed messages, which was useful for um, press wire, not so useful for the many short messages that most businesses sent or individuals sent. Um, with funding from people connected with that uh, company that he was working for, the Automatic Telegraph Company, um, he went to Britain to try and promote his uh, invention to the British Post Office Telegraph and to the cable telegraph companies that operated the cables between the U.S. and Britain. Um, he didn't succeed in selling them his ideas, but he learned a lot about this more scientific approach to telegraphy that the British telegraph system had. 
Uh, one of the key people involved in British telegraphy was Sir William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, one of the leading physicists of the time who actually invented many of the instruments used on the cable telegraph system, as well as, most importantly, electrical testing equipment. And there were other uh, sort of scientifically inclined telegraphers. And Edison brought that back to the U.S., set up his first small lab in 1873 at the end of the year, and then by 1875, this much larger lab in Newark. But Newark was becoming a very polluted city because it was such a manufacturing center, and especially the leather trade uh, created a lot of noxious um, chemicals that got into the water system. And Edison decided to move his family to a much more um, a clean environment, uh, something more like he'd grown up in, a small village. Uh, he moved to Menlo Park, New Jersey. Uh, we're sitting at the site of that laboratory. Uh, Edison moved here because he found uh, a good plot of land that was a kind of failed housing development. The uh, office for the company, which was a house that they had built there, was the house that he bought for his family. And then uh, his father actually supervised the building of the laboratory here at Menlo Park. It was 100 feet long by 25 feet wide, two stories. And as he wrote to William Morton, the president of Western Union, he had facilities unrivaled right, for experimental work in telegraphy. And so this marked the beginning of something really new, a laboratory devoted to in new inventions. And Edison had this plan of working on, uh, you know, basically patenting a, a new thing every 10 days and a big thing every six months or so. And essentially he did that at Menlo Park. Uh, while he was here, he made some significant uh, further improvements in telegraph uh, technology. Uh, after Alexander Graham Bell invented his telephone and announced it, uh, he was actually working on a form of telegraphy known as acoustic telegraphy to send multiple messages um, uh, on a single wire. Uh, this was prompted by Edison's own invention of what was known as the quadruplex for sending four messages on a single wire. And so Edison and others, including Bell, were working on these acoustic telegraphs where you would send, uh, using a tuning fork or vibrating reed, a different frequency or tone. And these could be separated out at the other end. Um, Bell turned that into the telephone, and there was another guy, Alicia Gray, who came up with an idea for a telephone as well, simultaneously. And Edison was working on something that would have been a telephone. So when Bell announces his telephone, uh, Western Union says, we need to be working on this. Edison um, goes to work on telephone technology. And um, one of the things he does is he invents a much improved transmitter. Um, using a small carbon button. Uh, this carbon button transmitter became standard in the industry. Edison would later make more improvements for the Bell Company, but um, this gave Western Union an uh, important entree into telephony, and for a while, Western Union and Bell competed against each other, and Western Union finally sold its telephone services to Western Union. Uh, so Edison, had made this major improvement in telephone technology. While he was working on the telephone, he invented something totally unexpected. Edison was a telegraph 
telegrapher and then a telegraph inventor, he thought about recording messages. And so he thought, well, we need a way to record telephone messages. And that was for two reasons. One, to have a record of it. But secondly, one of the key technologies that Edison and others had worked on were known as telegraph repeaters. With battery power, you could transmit about 250 miles, but this is a very big country. And so if you needed to send a message further, so you could send a message down to Washington, but if a message had to go to New Orleans, you had to repeat it. Um, so what they did was they came up with automatic repeaters. And Edison thought about an automatic repeater for telephony. And one of the ways he thought about doing that was to record and play back the message uh, to retransmit it. And the result of this was this astounding invention he made at the end of 1877 called the phonograph. Edison was the first person not just to record sound, but more importantly, play it back. And this was what made Edison famous. Edison became the wizard of, Par of Menlo Park, right? He became the wizard of Menlo Park because of the phonograph. Um, many people think it was his later electric light inventions, but he was already world famous by the time he got to the electric light at the end of, or the fall of 1878. So in September 1878, Edison begins to experiment with electric lighting. He'd done a few desultory experiments uh, in late 1877 on electric lighting, but it was the emergence of electric lights for street lighting in the form of arc lights, which are very bright lights, not suitable for indoors, that prompted Edison to see that there was a field for uh, experimental work to design a system for indoor lighting. Lots of people had been working on this uh, for 40 years before Edison. There were lots of patents, but nobody had succeeded in designing a lamp that was long-lasting, that could be distributed over a wide dis distance, Edison, because of his experience, because he was somebody who had an experimental approach that included not just coming up with an idea, having a machine build and experimenting with it, but also doing what we would call basic applied research, especially on materials, right? So his carbon button required a lot of uh, chemical and material research, for example. Um, the same thing with the recording um, of the automatic telegraph. It used chemicals to record with. So Edison had this experience of experimental research in a laboratory combined with a machine shop that could manufacture experimental devices that could then be modified and improved. And this is the stage that's set in uh, September of 1878 when he begins working on electric light. And the first people to become interested in what Edison is doing, which is announced through the newspapers, because the newspapers are always interested in what Edison's doing at this point. Uh, one of the things about being an inventor is he always has something new to talk about. And so the reporters kept coming out from New York and occasionally down from Boston and elsewhere to visit Thomas Edison and interview him. And one of his interviews was about this system of electric lighting that he proposed to develop. It would be just like the underground gas systems that were used in all major cities at that point in Europe and the United States. Uh, there was a central station or a central uh, place where the gas was distributed from through underground conductors or pipes 
uh, into buildings and into the fixtures, right, uh, that were turned on and off individually. And that was exactly what Edison planned to replicate. There were meters for measuring how much gas people used. That was another element of the system that he planned to develop. By October, the people connected with Western Union and Golden Stock had formed a major company, the Edison Electric Light Company, to invest in Edison's experimental work. And between October of 1878 and March of 1881, Edison received about $150,000 just for experimental work. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.5 or $4 million in today's money, which was an extraordinary sum for a completely experimental system. Right? And this was um, really something new, uh, this kind of concerted research and development approach to trying to develop the lamp. Most inventors were working by themselves with maybe an assistant or a machinist. Um, they focused on the lamp. Occasionally, they'd experiment with generators. But um, they weren't working on a system. And that's what set Edison apart. From the beginning, he envisioned a system. And unlike the leading physicists of the day, he actually understood the ways in which the scientific laws related to electricity, heating wires, and related um, aspects of electrical science could be used to design the system. And one of the key things he understood from the beginning was that um, the big problem with distributing electric light and power over a long distance was the cost of the um, copper conductors. So in telegraphy, he'd invented the quadruplex, which reduced the number of wires that had to be built, huge cost savings. Here, he, again, he was thinking about how do I reduce the cost of the wires? And the way to do that was to have a light bulb that had a very high resistance to the current. That is, as the current went through the wires and met the lamps, there was a lot of resistance to that current. 100 ohms measuring current in ohms resistance. Um, most lamps at that time were somewhere around maybe 10 ohms at best. Uh, which meant you needed larger copper conductors because of these electrical laws. He knew that the heating effects could be minimized by having this high resistance light. As a consequence, he could reduce the size of the copper conductors and make his system economical. Um, this was a huge insight that people didn't at first understand. Um, there was one other inventor in Britain who had come up with this idea simultaneously, but never really developed it. That's what Edison did at Menlo Park. Uh, he began at Menlo Park with five men, two experimenters and three machinists. By the end of uh, 1877, beginning in 1878, there were about a dozen men there. The staff grew slightly as he worked on the phonograph. But beginning with the electric light, Edison began to hire a different kind of staff. He hired his first a person with advanced training or education in science, a guy named Francis Upton, came to the laboratory uh, in late November of 1878. He was the first person to ever have a master's in science from Princeton University. And he'd actually gone to 
uh, Berlin to study and get his PhD. Um, he, he only spent a year there before deciding to come home, but he had studied with Hermann von Helmholtz, one of the leading, again, physicists of the day in Germany. Um, and so Edison suddenly had this guy who had advanced um, training in science and who was also a very skilled mathematician. Edison wasn't really a mathematician. Uh, he had a good understanding of kind of uh, being able to uh, kind of evaluate what the approximation would be of his electrical system based on these electrical laws. But he wasn't the one who was going to do all the calculations and the logarithms to figure it out. That's initially what he hired Upton for, and he discovered that Upton was a very good experimenter, too. And Upton became a central figure in the experimental work. Uh, one of the other key figures was Charles Batchelor, who had been the foreman of his Newark shops, became his experimental assistant in December 1873 when he opened up his first small lab. And Batchelor was his right-hand man. Like Edison, uh, Batchelor was self-trained in electricity. Uh, he had started as a mechanic and then a foreman. Uh, so um, Upton is the first person with advanced education in electrical science who joins the Edison Laboratory. Edison was a self-trained chemist. He had been doing chemical experiments since he was a boy. Uh, and he had a very good understanding of chemistry. But he knew that to carry out experiments that he needed, he needed skilled and well-trained chemists. So he hired two PhD chemists, and at that time, if you were getting a PhD in chemistry, you were doing that in Germany, which led the world in chemical education. And so Edison had two PhD chemists trained in German universities. He had Upton. Um, he had mostly uh, self-trained people as his experimental staff, but now he's beginning to hire these other kind of researchers. By um, January, Edison was had been experimenting for several months. He'd um, designed lamps with uh, regulators, and he had chosen platinum as his material. The reason for this is that although carbon was what a lot of people experimented with, the vacuum technology of the day wasn't sufficient to protect the carbon from burning up in the atmosphere after a small period of time. It wasn't good for long life lamps. Uh, metals could last longer as long as they didn't reach their melting point. Tungsten, which is what a modern lamp has, uh, would have been what Edison would have preferred to use, but there was no way at that point to turn it into a wire. And Edison needed it to be a wire for two reasons. One, the turns of the wire increased the amount of resistance, that is the amount of metal that the electric current had to go through. Uh, and those turns helped to increase the resistance, but they also kept the heat within the lamp. So you needed less power to light it, right? Um, so Edison chose platinum, which was the metal with the next highest melting point. The problem with platinum is it's relatively rare and very expensive. It was a material Edison was familiar with from telegraphy, and he actually did research to find other supplies of platinum, never succeeding, although this uh, actually led to a campaign to try and find uh, platinum, which was a byproduct of gold mining, actually. And so Edison wrote to gold miners in California and elsewhere to see what the, the, uh, if their supplies of um, 
the, the leftover uh, rock and sand from the uh, gold mining might have enough platinum in it to supply him. He didn't actually succeed, but this actually would later lead Edison into uh, mining technology, which he spent a lot of time on in the 1890s. Um, so here's Edison, he's got this platinum lamp, but the platinum's melting too soon. So what does he do in January of 1879 after conducting experiments for, what, three months now? He realizes he needs to do that basic applied research. He begins examining the platinum as it's heated. He also experiments with other metals that are cheaper to see if he can improve those. He discovers that it's absorbing hydrogen from the air. So he realizes that even though he thought he wasn't going to need a vacuum for his platinum, that he does. And so this leads Edison to develop vacuum technology. He hires a glass blower who had been involved with the Geisler company. Uh, Geisler was a scientific instrument maker, and amongst the instruments he made were vacuum pumps for experimental purposes for university teaching. And so this guy Ludwig Vohm comes to the laboratory and works with Edison and other experimenters there to develop the best vacuum technology of the time that he could use to protect his lamp. In the meantime, he realizes that he can't use the standard generators of the day, and he'd begun experimenting with those. By May of 1879, Edison had his generator. He still didn't have a commercial lamp. Right? So he's working simultaneously on more than one part of the system, He's also begun work on the meters, the underground conductors. Um, this is something Edison is able to do that nobody else working on electric lighting can do because he has this laboratory, he has a research staff, he has the funding to approach the problems simultaneously because he sees them as part of a system. Um, during the summer, Edison briefly turns away from electric lighting. He and Batchelor are focused on improving their telephone for the British market. By that time, Western Union had sold out to the Bell Company, but overseas, uh, uh, people promoting the Edison system are still at work, and so he's trying to develop improvements for the telephone in Great Britain. And so one of the things that they're doing a lot of experiments with are those carbon buttons. And uh, one day in September or October, it's a little unclear when this happens, Edison starts rolling absentmindedly one of those carbon buttons uh, with his fingers and suddenly realizes that he can make it into a wire-like substance, elongated. So at the beginning of October, Charles Batchelor tries to bake one of these uh, carbon buttons in a circular, a, a mold that's a spiral, essentially. And so they have that spiral form for the filament, um, but it breaks too easily. So then they say, think, okay, what else is a thread, or is a wire, and so they use a thread. Uh, so they carbonize a thread, put it in a lamp, and a couple of things happen. First of all, it's about the right quality of the light, they were looking for something about the same brightness as a gas lamp. And more importantly, it was over 100 ohms, which was the target that Edison was looking for for the resistance of his lamp. And even more importantly, it was a really cheap material. 
So Edison and Batchelor and Upton, the other experimenters, are looking at this lamp. It's burned for 13 and a half hours. They decide to crank up the current just to see what happens. It burns for another hour, and then the lamp bulb breaks, right, which destroys the filament. But they knew they were on the right track. So they initially just experiment with all the carbonized materials they have at hand. Um, then they begin to do more focused research. And this is one of the key elements of Edison's approach to invention. Okay, I have a material. I know this material has certain qualities. Um, what might be the best um, approach to doing research on that material? So initially, he looks at things like uh, different kinds of wood, paper. Um, and in fact, the first public demonstrations at the end of 1879, the beginning of 1880, on New Year's Eve, he has a big demonstration, are paper bristol board, kind of cardboard. Um, they last pretty long. Um, they provide the right amount of light. But um, he feels he can improve that uh, technology. But it, it astounds people when they come out to Menlo Park over New Year's Eve and see this wonderland of electric light. They put street lights up, and the buildings were all lit with this very mellow light that didn't flicker, right? And people come into the lab, and they're just astounded by it. But Edison understood this was the beginning of a new stage, right? Research to development. So over the next several months, he sends his, uh, one of his German chemists into the laboratory to read all of the literature, not just English, but French and German, which were the two main scientific languages other than English at this time. Uh, to see what information there was about different natural materials that could be used as a filament. And they realize, after this research, that there are certain kinds of grasses and similar kinds of plants that have long, contiguous fibers. And they focus their research on that. By the fall, they realize that the best material is bamboo from Japan. And so the commercial bulbs that Edison begins producing at the end of 1880 are bamboo filaments. And these remain the material in all the lamps that are made during the time Edison himself was involved in the electric light industry. In the meantime, they're also working on further improvements in the generators. The underground system, so one of the experimental projects is how do you um, insulate those underground conductors. So one of his experimenters uh, works again with one of the German chemists to study the literature in the, in the library and then begin to mix up different compounds and they run a bunch of underground conductors, insulated underground conductors to test them. They're still working on improving the vacuum and making it a simpler a technology to use for commercial purposes. Edison takes an old factory building near Menlo Park, converts it into a lamp factory. Um, they develop the commercial meter, uh, the underground uh, system, the junction boxes for the conductors. Um, they work on ways to regulate the voltage of the generators. And uh, they actually build a small power plant 
at Menlo Park and power and light the whole town and the laboratory. And they begin to bring out the investors who are very excited. And then they bring out the aldermen from the city of New York because if they're going to build the central station that Edison wants to put in New York, they need permission to rip up the streets to put the underground system in. And so this is where we are by the end of 1880. Edison, over the course of uh, basically two years, has developed an entire commercially viable system of electric light and power. They then go into New York in uh, the spring of 1881 and begin to lay underground conductors. That turns out to be the most expensive and difficult part of the whole project of lighting lower Manhattan. It takes them from essentially April of 1881 until the beginning of September of 1882 to lay all those conductors. The station is built and ready to operate before the conductors are finished, and then they have to wire all the buildings, right? So that takes a long time to do uh, for the first time. But by September 4th, they're ready, and they actually light a square mile lower Manhattan. Where do they light? Wall Street, the area where the newspapers are, so money and publicity. There's also um, a lot of manufacturing in Lower Manhattan, and so power is a possibility. And so one of the things Edison begins working on at Menlo Park as well is motor technology, although it takes another, oh, really uh, uh, almost a decade before motor technology really begins to take off. But nonetheless, Edison envisions this because one of the things about electric lighting is it's still pretty expensive in that era all lighting sources are. So most people aren't using light during the day. They're re relying on windows and natural light to come in, uh, even in office buildings. It's only on the darkest days that you would use artificial light. Uh, so a lot of energy from the system being used at night, not much during the day, but if you can use motors during the day, all of a sudden you can balance the load right on the system and make your return on investment much quicker because you're selling power during the day as well as light at night. And Edison realized this. And in his notebooks throughout his work on electric light and power, the experimental work, the R&D work, he's constantly figuring the costs and comparing it to gas light and arc light, um, trying to figure out at what point he will be able to compete and then make this return on investment. So this is what Edison is able to do. He's able to envision electric light and power as a system. He's able to understand how you innovate this entirely new technology. And he has the resources, and it, more importantly, he has an institution he'd already conceptualized, the Menlo Park Library, uh, excuse me, the Menlo Park Laboratory, <laughs> which grows in scale as the electric light research takes place. So he began with five men, it grew to about a dozen, then 20, 25 when he's working on electric light and power. They build new buildings besides that original laboratory building. They build a nice new office and library, two stories brick. The library is furnished with funds from the sale of those British telephone rights. And then they build a huge brick machine shop 
because now they're not just doing little uh, refined uh, fine instruments like a phonograph or a lamp, but now they're talking about building generators and motors. Um, so all of a sudden now he has a research complex, right? And more and more machinists and experimenters join the lab. By 1880, he's got about 60 men here. And they're also, of course, trying to design the equipment for the lamp factory. All the other manufacturing, the generators, the meters, uh, even, even fixtures for lights, those are standard manufacturing practices. For the first time, though, Edison is trying to figure out how you mass produce fragile light bulbs. And so the laboratory is an integral part of the design of the equipment in the lamp factory at Menlo Park. And that's one of the reasons why he chose Menlo Park as the place.